We're in Revelation chapter 19. If you're just joining us, we have extra Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, if you need one, I have thoroughly enjoyed our study and I'm still enjoying so much going through the book of Revelation. And today we're coming to a passage on the second coming of Christ. I like war movies. And I also, when I'm watching sports, if I don't have a skin in the game in the sense of saying, I don't care who wins, I usually root for the underdog. Sometimes I'll watch a, a, a football game or a sporting event and it's so bad I'll turn it off because I'll be like, I already know what's going to happen. And then every once in a while, you turn it on in the morning and you're like, no way, they came back and won. So I think there's an analogy there. The Bible frequently talks about the coming back of God to judge the earth. Like a lot of people think Jesus came up with that idea. Do you realize that way back thousands of years ago, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, seven generations from Adam, seven generations, that's, that's a pretty young earth. The Bible says in the book of Jude that Enoch, you've all heard of Enoch who walked with God, Enoch prophesied and said the Lord's coming with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. So for thousands of years, God has raised up people to announce the Lord is coming back to judge people. And I'm sure everybody didn't go around, but thanks for sharing that, Enoch. That really, really made a difference. But some did. So when we think about the second coming of Christ, the Bible has a lot to say about it but it's often coupled with the idea of judgment. So as we've been reading through the book of Revelation, here's a group of people that are suffering. They're struggling. They're getting beat down, beat up, robbed, persecuted, ostracized, and they're disillusioned, and their pastor, John, is thrown in prison. And so Jesus shows up and he says, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Give this to my servants. And in the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verse 7, John quotes an Old Testament verse. Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And then it says, and all the tribes of the earth will, will they go, yes. No, it says, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it's almost like the table is set that when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be a happy event for most people. It will be for some people, but for most people, it will not. So there's a lot in the Bible about the second coming. And each time you're reading the Bible, it might be describing a different part of it. So sometimes it's very comforting for those who have lost loved ones. It says, don't be discouraged. The Lord's going to come. And those who have died and gone before us will be raised and will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And we're always going to be with the Lord. So that's comforting. But sometimes it's a sober warning like this is going to get ugly. And you don't want to be on the wrong side when Christ comes back. That's what this passage is. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21 is a very powerful, very direct description of the coming of Jesus. And there are three things that we're going to see here. A description of Christ and his army at his coming. So right before he comes, you know, military um, generals like to display their army, especially to sort of flex their, their muscle to show like, you don't want to mess with us. So you'll see North Korea or China soldiers marching. So we're going to see, see the, the army. There, there's the general, the coming King Christ and his army. There's that description. And then in the middle of it, we'll see an invitation to the aftermath of his coming. You're kind of like, you go from right before he comes 
to right after he comes, and maybe like after a boxing match, you'll see people cleaning up the mess. So this is an invitation to clean up the carnage after he comes. And then third, we're going to see the actual destruction of his enemies at his coming. We all know Jesus is coming, and often Christians just sing, Will your friends know why? When you wave goodbye, shout it out. And we're thinking about what's going to happen to us. Woohoo! we're going to be with Jesus. Bye-bye. But we also have to remember what's going to happen to those left behind. And this passage graphically describes that. So let's start by looking at a description of Christ and his army at his second coming. Lord, open our eyes because we all need to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at verse 11. John says, And I saw heaven opened. So the idea here is, here's a new vision. He had just seen the marriage supper of the Lamb last week. Yes, we're going to sit down at the welcome table with Jesus. Now he goes, now the next thing I saw was heaven opened. Now the idea of heaven opening, that in itself is kind of weird, right? Like you open curtains, you open windows, you open doors. In fact, John began in chapter 4 by saying, I saw a door open in heaven and I went up there. But this time the idea of heaven opening is like, wow. It just kind of peeled back the sky. And that in itself is a biblical imagery. In the book of um, Isaiah, the Bible says, all the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. So it's kind of like John's just looking up, clear blue sky, and all of a sudden, like curtains, the blue sky just opens up. And you're like, what's back there? The sky be roll back like a scroll the trumpet will sound wait isn't that a song the 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 clouds be rolled back like a scroll the trumpet will yeah that's part of the song it is well with my soul that's where they got this from the idea of the heavens being open and so you're like so what's back there behind this the curtain so john doesn't say i want to tell you everything i saw but he says look behold a white horse and he who sat it upon it is called faithful and true. Now, it's interesting. Jesus is not standing there with a sword. He's sitting on a great white horse. Now, it's not the first time Jesus rode on something as a king, because remember when he was on earth, Zechariah chapter 9 prophesied, behold your king coming. Now, typically, kings do not ride donkeys, right? It's kind of like anticlimactic. You know, imagine, you know, some famous person coming, you know, riding in. They're going to ride in on a donkey, right? And so I think the idea there was in, in the imagery of Christ's first coming, he came humble. He came lowly and meek. He came to be sacrificed. He came as a lamb, a gentle lamb. The second time he comes, he's coming as a lion, a mighty, conquering victorious general on a white horse. Mr. Rogers is is not Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild. This is King Jesus coming to take back what's his. So as he's sitting on this white horse, John says he's called faithful and true. Now there you go. Why those names? Well, one of the things that we're learning from the book of Revelation is God's going to keep his word. Remember last week we read in Verse 11, these are the true words of God. Two more times in the book, John's going to describe what heaven's going to be like, and he goes, these are faithful and true words. But Jesus himself is faithful and true, and here's why that's good news. 
Whatever Jesus says is true. And number two, because he's faithful, he's going to do everything he says. So that's why it's a good idea to Velcro yourself to Jesus because he will never let you down. He's faithful and true. Care what anybody else says or whether you feel like he's going to do it. Jesus had been promising to those who are suffering, I'm going to come back and I will judge the wicked. I will comfort you and I will crush them. And now the heavens open and there he is. I'm about to do what I said. I'm faithful and true. But then it says in righteousness he judges. So one of the things we have to understand is that when Christ comes back, he's not just coming back to have a Super Bowl halftime show like, hey, look at me. Every eye will see me. When the Bible speaks of him returning, he's returning to judge. This is a central doctrine of what it means to be a Christian. We believe in Christ who was crucified, dead and buried, raised from the dead, third day arose, and then it says, and he's coming to judge the living. Somebody didn't just decide to add that to the Apostles' Creed. That's from Scripture. 2 Timothy 4.1 says, I solemnly charge you before God and before the presence of Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. Some of you know someone who has had to go to court. Wouldn't have been you, of course, but we probably know some sinners out there had to go to court because, as John reminded us, we're perfect here. But sometimes if you have to go to court, let's say you, you didn't mean to, but you were doing 90 miles an hour in a school zone. Thankfully, the little old lady dove out of the way so you're not on trial for manslaughter. But nevertheless, you're in trouble. And as you're meeting with your, the judge, he says, listen, you better hope you get this judge and not this judge, because this judge doesn't like people who speed in school zones. If you're wondering which judge you're going to get, I'll save you from any lawyer fees. It's Jesus, okay? One day, every one of us, the Bible says, will stand before Jesus. Jesus said when he was on earth, the Father has put all judgment in my hands. And any faithful preacher of the Bible is supposed to tell people that. In Acts chapter 10, Peter said this, God has commanded us to tell all of you that he has fixed a day. He's going to judge the world, right? Paul said it in Acts 17, same thing. Jesus is coming to judge, but it, but it adds a little phrase. How's he going to do it? Is he going to take some bribes on the side? No, he's going to judge in righteousness. So notice what the text says. And as he's on this horse, in righteousness he judges. We can't do that because we don't have all the facts. There are some things that we're so sure this is what the way it is. But he has all the facts. And he will get it right every time. In fact, way back in Genesis, when Abraham was pleading with God, Genesis 19.20, he said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? So right now there's a lot of poor judgments going on, wrong judgments. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to sort it all out. We're going to read later in this book, every deed is open and we will be judged by our thoughts and deeds and motives. And, and those who have done wrong, judgment will be righteous. But, but you're like, okay, in judgment, I get that. But then it says he also wages war. What does that mean? He wages war. When Jesus comes back, he's coming to fight. He's not coming just to have a flight down to the clouds. He's coming to fight. So John says, and his eyes are a flame of fire. Now that's an imagery that comes all the way back to chapter 1. His eyes are a flame of fire. Have you ever had some people just look at you and you're like, 
I just feel like they're looking right through me. Um, especially if you're, some people are very reserved in their words, and so you say something to them, and they're just staring at you. And, and it's almost like you're thinking, I think they know what I'm thinking, right? Well, that's the point here. With his blazing eyes, he does know all about you. And so we're sort of awakened to think of Jesus in a different way, not like, yo, 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 JC, me and him are good, but the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, his eyes see everything. His x-ray, you know, I, I often have said to people, I'm sure glad that all my thoughts don't run across the screen on my forehead. Are you glad about that? I'm sure glad that some of the things I think and my motives aren't seen in the public because I'm ashamed of them. I try to repent of them. But Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire. And then it says, upon his head are many diadems. Now, there's two types of crowns in the Bible. There's Stephanos, which gets Stephen. Believers get them. We get crowns. But then diadems are kingly crowns. Now, this is, this is not the first time the book mentions crowns. In chapter 4, it says the 24 elders cast down their crowns. So we sing, holy, 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 casting down our crowns. But in chapter 12, it mentions the devil, and it says he had seven crowns on his head. Why that imposter? How dare him try to act like he's a king? And then we read in chapter 13, and here comes the beast. He had ten crowns on his head. And here Jesus is like, give me all the crowns. He had many crowns upon his head. And the idea is because kings wear crowns, so if you're a king, here's your crown. But if you're the king of kings, then you get all the crowns. And that's why we sing. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. That's why we sing. And crown him Lord of all. What a great thought that here's Jesus. Now, don't envision that he's trying to juggle like, wow, that guy managed 83 diadems on his head the idea is he's the king of kings all the crowns are on his head and that should encourage you if you trust and love jesus he's got everything he all authority is his god has exalted him and his name is lord of all so our our our, our lord and savior jesus has a crown and many crowns on his head and then it says and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself Remember that old one-liner for kids? What do you call a man with no nose? Nobody knows. Here's Jesus. By the way, that just came to my head, and I'm going to put out a disclaimer right now. When I tell these little quips, they're never unrelated, silly one-liners about the guy at the you know, racetrack. They just come into my head. So bear with me. Some of you get annoyed, dad jokes or whatever, and I'm not trying to make light of the Word of God. But here Jesus has a name which no one knows. What does that mean? No one knows except himself. So if somebody said, what's your name? I never heard that name. Is that, is, that what, is that what it is? Nobody ever heard that name? I think the idea here is that there are things about Jesus that have not been revealed yet. So if you think you got God figured out, stop it. 1 Corinthians 8 says, if you think you know anything, you don't know anything as you ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he's known by him. So I, I have a lot more that I'm going to learn about Christ. And some of it will be in this life, and the rest will be in the next life. That's why Paul says, now we see in a glass darkly. Like recently, Austin and I were talking about kind of a humorous experience that, that was happening. We don't know why things happen, but Paul says one day we will. So maybe when he discloses this 
name, it's because he's going to reveal us to us something else about who he is. But it's interesting when you think about Christ having a name which no one knows, Christ being the one who's going to judge, Christ being the one who's going to, going to wear a new name. It also reminds us in this book that he's going to give us a new name. So did you catch that? There's a couple times in, in the book of Revelation, he says, if you're faithful to me, Revelation 2.17, he says, I'll give you a white stone and a new name. In chapter 3, verse 12, he says, and I will give you a, a I'll write, write on you the name of my God. And so years ago, we used to do something weird. We would sing hymns. And they usually were based right from the Bible. And it never said 10X. You didn't keep saying the same thing. But we'd sing things like this. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. White robes, angels sing the story. A sinner has come home. So we would sing, and we would rejoice. Hey, what's your new name? And by the way, don't put in, uh, like, I, I usually hint to my kids when, when I find out one of them's going to um, have another kid. I, I, I'll suggest, you know, you might want to throw in one of my names as part. Don't suggest to him what the name will be. He's going to give us a new name, and we're going to celebrate but there's a mystery here, this, this mysterious new name. In Isaiah 61, the Bible says, The nations will see your righteousness, all your kings, your glory, and you will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. So please don't say, do you have another one? That, you know, do you have another option? Just let him give us that new name and let us delight that he has a name which no one knows. Now, with that... It says he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Okay, that's weird, right? If I came out here with a, a white robe on and it's covered with red, you might say, oh, Pastor Tom must have fallen in ketchup or Pastor Tom spilled his wine, but it was non-alcoholic. Or Pastor Tom um, got grape juice on him or Pastor Tom's cut and he's bleeding, right? So... Interestingly here, guess what the word is for dipped? It's baptized. The word baptizo in Greek means to dip. So this is why I, I respect Presbyterians, but I like Dunkin' Donuts, but I don't like Dunkin' Munchkins. Because you sprinkle them. Some of you missed that one. But I'm not saying sprinkling's bad, sprinkling's wrong, but I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. The word baptize means to dip. It means to immerse. And there's, a, there's an imagery when you're dipped under the water, you're buried with Christ and raised from the dead, which, by the way, we have a baptism coming up on the 19th, and there's only a few people that I know of that are planning on doing it, so don't know what to make of that. But that's the Lord's work, not ours. So his robe is baptized in blood. When you read the book of Revelation, there's three ways that blood is used. One, it's the precious blood of Jesus. He washed us from our sins in his blood. But the people who've been washed in, from their sins in his blood are not wearing bloody robes. They're wearing white robes who have been washed in his blood. And so we used to sing, are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? You're like, what planet did you come from? Well, some of you saying, what can wash away my sins? We just sang about the blood, right? So, so when it says his robe is dipped in blood, is it, is it to indicate that Jesus' blood washes us away? Maybe. There's another way that blood's used in the book of Revelation. It's used to describe the blood of martyrs, 
right? That, oh Lord, how long till you avenge our blood? Over and over again, it talks about people who sh whose blood was poured out because of their faith in Christ. And that's happening right now, perhaps even door to door in Afghanistan. There are people being martyred and spilling their blood. But there's a third way that blood is used in the New Testament book of Revelation, and it's the blood of judgment. It's the blood of people who, who opposed God and lost. And so in Revelation 14, remember the great wine press of the wrath of God and pours out his wrath on people and, and the blood was up to the horse's bridle. Probably here the idea of his robe being baptized in blood is, is to prepare us for what's about to happen. So I'm fine if you go, no, the blood here is the blood of Jesus washed away my sins, great. But I think contextually, this is about him destroying his enemies and there's going to be blood everywhere. So, but then it says, and he has a name. So here's one name nobody knows, but then his name is called the Word of God. Now, Jesus has lots of names. You know, you've heard songs about that, the Lamb, the Lion. You go back to all the Old Testament names, Jehovah Jireh, you know, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. He's got a lot of names. Here, it's the Word of God. And we don't have time to really develop this, but there is an emphasis in this section on the Word of God. The fact that God keeps his word. Remember we just saw, these are the true words of God. And so it doesn't uh, take a rocket scientist to say, as Jesus fulfills the word of his promise to come again and, and destroy his enemies and bless his followers, it would make sense that he's called the word of God. Say, okay, John, what else do you see up there as you're describing Christ and his army? Well, then he says, and the armies which are in heaven, wait, John, hold, hold your boots here. Okay, heaven just got peeled open. Whoa, look at the Lord Jesus on a white horse. Crowns on his head. Glorious. And he says, oh, there's armies up there. Armies? Little soldiers? Right? So when you read the Bible and it talks about armies, there's two possibilities. Armies is often used of angels. Only the, the Hebrew word for armies is Sabaoth. So Jehovah Sabaoth the Lord of armies, but most Bibles translate it the Lord of hosts, right? So when we sing, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you're like, okay, what's that have to do with this? Well, what did we just sing before that? Praise him above you, heavenly host. Hey, angels, hey, armies up there, praise God. And so it could very well be here that, that all this is talking about is that Jesus has a mighty army of angels, and they're going to come with him to help him fight. And that's possible. The reason I don't think it's talking about angels, but I think it's talking about God's people, is because it says, and these armies are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That doesn't usually speak of angels having fine linen, white and clean. While angels are sinless, the people who have this, these robes that are white and clean have been washed in the blood. So I think this is talking about God's people. So, when Jesus comes back, we're coming with him. And by the way, you non-equestrians who have never ridden a horse, it says, and we're going to be on white horses. So, I suspect that there will be a little time for you to get your saddle. You know, you're probably going to fall off the other side on funniest videos. But at some point, we're all going to get Jesus going, everybody on? All right, we're going. Now, it leads to a theological question. How could we be up there coming back with him if we're down here when he's coming back for us? 
You follow me? Like I thought we're down here when he comes back. But now you're saying we're up here when he comes back. I didn't stutter, but I'll try to give you an explanation. The Bible says that when the Lord comes back, we will meet him in the air. Okay? Now, some people, their view of that is that this is seven years before this event. My view is that this army just got here. They, didn't, they bypassed boot camp, went right to officer school. The, the moment they got there, they're, they're on their horse and coming back. And you go, well, that's kind of silly. <laughs> Why would Jesus reverse bungee jump up to heaven if we're just coming back to earth? And I go, well, let's think about what's about to happen. Right now, his people are hostages in a certain sense in a dangerous, fallen, wicked world of rebels controlled by Satan. If my kids were held hostage in a home, my first goal would be to get them out. And once they're out, then I'm nuking everybody in there, right? So I think what the Bible teaches is that when the Lord comes back, he swiftly moves us up to be with him so that when he comes down, the people who are here are about to experience a can of whoop. They're going to get a beat down. So think about this. We are coming back with him. That's a privilege, not because we deserve it. So what's going to happen when we come back? It says in verse 15, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Lots of imagery here. So please understand this. This is a figure of speech. So in your mind, don't picture Jesus has a big sword that's going to come out of his mouth, and he's going to go... This is just a symbol a sword is often symbolic for the word of God. Sometimes when the Bible describes him coming, it doesn't use a sword, it uses fire. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who don't know God. So don't get caught up too much thinking that Jesus is going to have a little sword like a, like a knife and start just chopping people like a weed whacker, okay? It's just an imagery that, that when he comes, it's going to be so awesome, but it's going, to be, it's going to be horrendous. Zechariah described it this way, as his feet touch the Mount of Olives, men's eyes will rot in their sockets while they're still standing on their feet, like whoosh. And they're going to, there's going to be carnage everywhere. So, it says, with this rod, he will smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. This is an allusion to Psalm 2. Way back in the Old Testament, David said, why are these people on planet Earth fighting against God? What are they thinking? The kings of the earth are going to gather themselves together and fight God? And then Jesus goes, I'll tell you what the Lord said to me. Ask me, I'll give you all these nations and you'll rule them with a rod of iron. So this is unfolding, the return of Christ to rule this world with a rod of iron. And he treads out the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Now some of you know the song, Oh, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the winepress where the grapes of wrath are stored. I'm not sure, I don't know the history of that song, but I don't think it was written to be a Christian hymn describing the return of Christ here in the second coming. Doesn't make it wrong. This is what politicians do, you know. They could be as godless as all get out, but they'll pull a verse out of Isaiah. You know, let's beat our plowshares into 
or our swords in the plowshares, you know, if you quote the Bible. So whatever that song originally, and maybe I'm wrong here, but whatever the origin of that song is, it's apply it to the coming of Christ. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the winepress where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword, and his truth, the truth of the word of God, is marching on. Now, it says on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. So you're like, man, alive, how many names does he have? One he doesn't, we don't know. The other one's the word of God. And now on his robe and on his thigh he's got a name written. You're like, does this mean I can get a tattoo? We're not going to go there. But I did, and when I looked up this Greek word thigh, it said that sometimes they would put a tattoo on the thigh of a camel, right? So, but Jesus has on his thigh, look what it says, king of kings and lord of lords. Not just king, but king of kings. Not just lord, but lord of lords. I present to you Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords. There's no close second. And so John gives us a description. We just finished a description of Christ and his army as he's about to come. Now we're going to see an invitation, and it's a strange invitation. It's an invitation to the after party, the cleanup crew. You know, those of you who come to the second service and have to stack the chairs. Because look at the invitation. Verse 17, he says, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice. And who's he inviting? Birds, birds, buzzards, carrion, vultures. And he said to the birds, come, assemble for the great supper of God. And the birds are like, ooh, Jesus having a barbecue? Eh. What are we going to be having? People's flesh. Come in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and the flesh of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men, slaves, small and great. As much as buzzards and, and things like that are weird, they're helpful. Because when animals die, they didn't always have the SPCA to come and scoop up that dead deer that stinks. The carrion would pick their brains, right? They, they, they would, I saw a far side cartoon of two vultures and um, they saw um, Einstein's dead body and they said, I always wanted to pick his brain. I told you, it's an illness. So don't let that over, overtake this. Like, this is crazy. Come and devour the carnage because dead bodies are strewn in the streets of everybody who opposed Jesus. So I don't want to soft pedal it and say, if you don't know Jesus, you're going to have a Christless eternity. You're going to miss out on all the, the Holy Ghost party. Like, this is, this is ought to be um, sobering. So, this is the description of the invitation. So, the implication is when he comes, it ain't going to be pretty. But then finally, we saw the invitation and we saw our earlier description. But we've got one last thing here, and that is we've got this destruction of the enemies themselves. How's it going to unfold? It's really interesting. Three times in Revelation, it says, God's going to gather all the nations together to fight, right? So God is like the great Geppetto, even though I know Pinocchio was not a marionette, but God is the great Geppetto who, who controls the hearts of all men, and he will allow demons to deceive all the people of this planet, and all the nations of this earth are going to get this brilliant 
idiotic idea that we can fight against God and fight against his people. And so in the Old Testament, as well as three times in this book, we're going to read of this gigantic battle. In chapter 16, it says they're going to gather together against the saints in his beloved city. We're going to read about that again in chapter 20. There's this massive end times gathering against God and his people. Now, here it is. The stages are set. You've got David and Goliath. You've got God and his army. You've got all the armies of the earth. And the armies of the earth are going, bring it on. And Jesus is going, I'm coming. Now, I'm an odds maker. The chances of the armies of the earth winning are zero. So save your money. They're not going to catch Jesus by surprise like George Washington snuck across. Then Jesus isn't going to have an off day. This is going to be an awful carnage. So, but yet it says, the kings of the earth were assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. I have a family story that when I was a very little boy, and this probably explains a lot of my... My mom says, when you were like two years old, your dad was in the bathroom shaving and you were mad at him. And so you came in and you grabbed him by the leg and you started shaking him. And I said, what did dad do? And she goes, he laughed, right? But this is kind of what it is. Like the nations of the earth are going to grab Jesus and fight him. Wow. So what's going to happen? The beast was seized and with him the false prophet. And by the way, to show that they're not innocent, they perform signs and they deceive those who received the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. In other words, all those people who decided not to receive Jesus, partly because of the influence of the devil and the beast and the false prophet, they're thrown in the lake of fire. But it says they're thrown alive. He adds that word, they're thrown alive. Those of you who like lobster, you're like, la, la, lobster, yardly, cross from the ball. Yeah, and that's not a shout out. I don't get any, never even been there. But those of you who've ever cooked a lobster, you know how you cook a lobster? You put them alive in boiling water, and they squeal. <coughs> Got your attention. Now they tell us not to do that. Kill the lobster first, then put them in there. These people are thrown alive. That's graphic, into the lake of fire. But we mustn't think that, but once they go in the water like the lobster, we're going to continue to read that day and night they will be tormented forever and ever. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from his mouth, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. I go, thanks, Tom. I was going to go to lunch, but <laughs> not hungry. Like, this is a sobering passage. But remember, we're trying to teach you that as you read the Bible, always come away asking a couple thoughts like, what should I believe differently? How shall I behave as, as a follower of Christ? The goal is not to read our Bibles and then forget what we read, but meditate on it. So let me give you a couple applications. There's a lot of stuff in this world that is out of control, right? Politics, pandemics, people, church, economy, Afghanistan. Lord, you made some promises, but it sure isn't looking like you're keeping your word. And Jesus goes, did you forget two things that I am faithful and true? So I think the greatest thing that we as Christians can do is find promises of Jesus for these terrible times and Velcro our heads to them and believe that 
no matter how bad the situation is, Jesus said it, and that's true. But not only is it true, but he's faithful to do it. So you're like, I can't take it any longer. Oh, I'm sorry. I I didn't realize Jesus said, you will be tempted beyond what you're able. I just can't stop doing this. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought the one who's faithful and true said, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, there are precious and magnificent promises of Jesus, no matter how things are out of control, that I can say, listen, no matter what the, the outlook is, the uplook is, he's faithful and true. And if I build my life on Jesus, I'm on solid ground. And he said, well, Pastor, I don't feel that way. There's times, like John said, I get anxiety too. Don't go by your feelings. They'll beat you like a, like a mess. But look away to the one who is faithful and true. And he will come. And he will win. Take comfort in that. What else? How do you feel about the return of Christ? You ever had somebody say, here he comes. That, that, that could have two very different implications. Here he comes. Oh, great. Or, really? Right? So how do you feel about that? Behold, he is coming. I'm glad a couple of you are glad for that. I'm glad for that. But you know what? When I read this passage, I still get scared. Right? And then I have to remind myself, if you've come to Christ... There's no condemnation. Your sins are completely forgiven. If you trust in Jesus, you're washed in the blood. There is no fear in love. God's goal is that we fall in love with the Jesus who forgave us. He doesn't want you to live a relationship of fear, but a relationship of gratitude, a relationship where we're overwhelmed by his grace. And we try not to sin because we're afraid of him. We try not to sin because we've been changed by him. And we want to be his disciples. But having said that, if Jesus is coming to judge, and he told his followers, you need to tell other people that I'm coming to judge so that they can respond appropriately, then we have a privilege and an obligation. Some of you go, I don't even like to talk to people as it is. And I definitely don't like to talk about politics and religion. Well, I'm sorry, but if you're a Christian, get over it. Because you know what Jesus said? I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he is going to convict the world of judgment. And he said, and you're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to convict the world of judgment. And you go, I know Jesus, and that's why I witness by my life. If my neighbor says, Tom's a nice guy, that is not going to help him to know that Jesus is coming to judge him. So you're like, so what are you saying, Pastor Tom? Do you have billboards, sandwich boards, those wooden boards that we should all get one and walk around in our neighborhood? Jesus is coming to judge you. No, of course not. But we need to be winsome, prayerful, loving, and willing to open up the lips and say to people, hey, 
What do you think about how the world's going to end? What are your views on the future? Sometime could I take a Bible and share with you what I think is going to happen? You say, but pastor, what if they say no? So what? Then say, okay, cool. We're still friends. But if you ever change your mind, right? So we don't have to go out, you know, like a Mary Kay rally. Put your head in, pound it. Let's all go. Run to the train station. Jesus is coming. You're going to be judged. But what an opportunity. Do you know how, how people become Christians? 80% of them are through friends and family members. You don't need to scream to strangers. You're going to be judged. But you need to think and pray and, and ask God, how could I help someone else who I love to consider the claims of Christ? Noah preached judgment for 100 years. How'd that go? It's not the results. That's up to God. But it's just being honest with our kids, our family, our loved ones. Jesus is coming. When I stand in the hospital bed and somebody's laying there dying, I don't cut corners. I go, listen, I want to tell you something. The Bible says that you're going to stand before Jesus. I want to tell you how to get ready. If they slap me with their tubes and tell me to get out, okay. But at least the Bible says warn them. So let's pray that God will give us opportunities. As John said, I'm excited. I believe a revival is coming, and we're going to see many people streaming to Christ because they've tried most everything and it ain't working. But we've got the answer. It's Jesus. So let's be praying. At the same time, in the midst of all your troubles, the coming of Jesus, I hope, will be a comfort. It's not going to always be like this. He may come today. And your troubles like a bus driver will all be behind you. Right? No more sorrow, no more pain, no more depression, no more anxiety, no more fighting, no more worried about our bills. It is done. And we'll have unending joy in the presence of Jesus forever. But before then, we need to pray three ways, hard, fast, and continuously for one another, for this church, for our leaders, for our people, for our flock, because Satan is going crazy, isn't he? But he's not going to win. And I want you to pray for us as pastors that God will keep us and our elders that God will protect us from evil and that we will lead this flock well and that you will follow well and that we will see great things from God. Amen? Amen. 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 Father, thank you so much. Your word is good and I pray that you will do it. Come again, Lord Jesus. But before then, if there's one more person we can reach, help us to just reach out and try to rescue them before they drown. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.